This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Alabama. And I'm Joe Newton. Uh, today we have a very special guest in our studio, Dr. Lydia Dugdale. She's the author of The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, give us a little background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Michigan, actually, uh, in the cornfields. Um, Midwesterner. And uh, my, my family's all from that area, Chicago and Michigan, and uh, left, as many people do, to go to college on a coast and didn't really go back after that. Uh, did you grow up with any kind of a spiritual background? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian family. Um, so that was, you know, very important to my, my immediate family, my broader family, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, Jewish and Christian teachings were very much a part of our upbringing. So you chose to become a physician. Was there any kind of influence from the family that led you to that path? Or how did you feel that calling on your life? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. It's probably better described as a calling than influence from my family. If anything, <laughs> uh, my family tried to discourage me from going to medical school. Um, my, I come from a very humanities oriented family. And so when I told my mother that I was thinking that I was supposed to maybe become a medical doctor, she said to me, but nobody in our family is in the sciences. And besides you've always needed your sleep. So how will you make it through medical school? So that was my mother's encouragement. Oh, and then she added, and biology was my least favorite class in high school. This was according my mother's least favorite class. So why would I want to go into something that had to do with the human body? So that was my familial encouragement, but no, I mean, the, the, the language of calling is really helpful because I would say, Medicine was never, never in the realm of possibilities for me in terms of what I would choose for myself. Um, It's probably more accurate to say that medicine chose me. And there was this sustained sense over many years that I was just supposed to become a doctor. Um, That's probably the the easiest uh, way to put it. But uh, I was not a pre-med I had to go back and do all of those requirements after I graduated college and, and then wasn't sure. I decided I wasn't going to apply to medical school, but it was just this sort of uh, internal nagging that I had to become a doctor. So after several years, I finally submitted and uh, went to medical school. Well, I find that very uh, interesting how you call it a nagging. Uh, for myself and my call to ministry, uh, it was an itch that need to be scratched and need to be looked at and followed. How did the ethical part, the ethics fall into that? I noticed that you're very much have a background in ethics. When I look back at my life now, I see that these questions of 
what is the best way to live? What is the good life? Um, what, what helps us make decisions toward right living? Those sort of, those kinds of questions always fascinated me. And in high school and in university, I was a debater. So debaters love to argue and they love to, uh, take on complex arguments and try to prove why they are right. And, um, and certainly sometimes that can relate to moral questions. So when I got to medical school and, you know, on some level, my mother was right. I'm not at all. Science is fine. It's interesting. I'm glad to understand how the human body works, but it's not what excites me, but what really excited me in medicine was thinking about the moral arguments uh, that really were very high stakes. So you're not just talking about, you know, whatever the debate topic may have been when I was in high school, what is the, you know, role for cattle in global warming and does, you know, should we all become vegetarians? Those kinds of questions were popular in high school. But when you get to medical school and start practicing medicine, the, the stakes are much higher, arguably, than, than cows, although I'm sure somebody's going to argue with me on that one. Um, <laughs> but but we're talking about, you know, what is the best way broadly considered for patients to live and die? Um, and those those are sometimes religious questions. Sometimes they're questions of technology. Sometimes they're questions of how the physicians do or do not communicate well with patients. Uh, sometimes they're questions of family dynamics. So they're just complicated, high stakes, uh, lots of lots of nuance. Um, so I found that that was kind of my niche in medicine. Mm -hmm. In the world of science, it gave me some humanities. And it looks like you're doing really well there. So your book, The Lost Art of Dying, um, I see that you have this influence from the 14th century uh, work of the church, the Ars Moriendi. Could you talk more about that? Yeah. So, so I was completely perplexed by this question of how patients die. Uh, and in part, what I saw when I was going through my medical training, and then of course, you know, still see it every day in the hospital is that many patients choose very, very aggressive life support measures as if somehow this technology is going to defeat death entirely. And they end up dragging out their dying, um, insisting on interventions that often the medical team knows will have little to no benefit. Um, and it seems like we've created systems that um, cause more harm than good, that um, that really uh, make suffering much worse, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And and I was perplexed about this, and I was wondering, how could we get at this question earlier? So I'm a primary care doctor. I love preventative medicine. How can we prevent this very bad, highly uh, technology-driven dying? How do we get at that before it's too late? And so I, I you know, I'm in medical ethics. I, I was reading a lot of different uh, medical ethics literature. 
And I stumbled across this art of dying, this Ars Moriendi, uh, just means art of dying in Latin. But it was a body of literature that emerged during the aftermath of the bubonic plague that struck Western Europe in the mid 1300s. So, you know, plague was not uncommon in the Middle Ages, um, certainly not unheard of in the late Middle Ages, but this particular outbreak of plague that swept through Western Europe in the 1350s was absolutely devastating. And uh, historians estimate that perhaps as many as two thirds of the population died. Uh. So you think about COVID right now, and yes, um, massive loss of life. It has been, it's upended everything, but um, we're not seeing, you know, one out of three or two out of three people dying, right? We're not seeing at all that scale. So what happened? Well, what happened in the late Middle Ages is that priests uh, who were the leading social authorities of the time, they either skipped town because they were well-connected and frankly <laughs> didn't want to get their hands dirty, or, or they, um, they got their hands dirty and died uh, in their care of their parishioners. The implications for this on the laity, the lay people, the common people were huge because people didn't know if their loved ones were damned, for example, if they didn't have a proper burial or receive anointing of the sick, what we uh, commonly refer to as last rites, hmm. right? If their bodies were not, their, their bodies and their souls were not properly cared for prior to death, what were the ultimate uh, implications of this. People were pretty afraid. And because handling death had been in the domain of the, the chaplains, the priests, mm. um, this the, the laity, the common people wanted to have some sort of tools to anticipate death and uh, prepare for it themselves. Uh, I am not at all a church historian, but um, in the late 1300s, so during the aftermath of this outbreak of bubonic plague, the, the church was in a real mess because there were two men and then later simultaneously three men claiming to be pope. So when you've got a power struggle, you're not exactly addressing the concerns of your people, right? Mm. You just can't. Uh -huh. There's no one to do it. So the church pulls itself together. In the Council of Constance in the early 1400s, there was a real drive at that council to address the pastoral concerns of the people. And one of the first things that comes out of the council is a handbook on the preparation for death. Hmm. Um, it is not published by the council. The very first author is actually still, it's unclear who it is. Um, I was just actually speaking to a scholar yesterday who's trying to figure out who the author of the oldest version might be of the Ars Moriandi. But the, the earliest version of the Ars Moriandi, uh, this Art of Dying Handbook, is based um, and, and relates very clearly to the work of one of the members of the Council of Constance. So we know that there's a link there. Hmm. And then, of course, this, you know, this council meets for several years to resolve this pope problem. And then all these council members disperse across Europe and with them, they take early copies of these handbooks on the art of dying. And so suddenly there is um, circulating throughout Europe these little booklets uh, that explain how 
in the absence of priests, you don't need a priest, you don't need an authority, but you yourself with your family, uh, in the context of your community, your parish, you know, whoever it is, your people, uh, you can think about your mortality and prepare. Mm. And it was work that was felt to be uh, able to be completed uh, over the course of a lifetime. So it's not, you know, now I'm old and sick and in the hospital, I better think about my mortality. Mm. This is, hey, we're all going to die. Mortality is 100%. Let's do this work now. So that's sort of the, the Ars Moriendi for you. So it's, it's really powerful how the people in that time accepted this and actually live with this uh, for over 500 years. What's the difference now? Why is it hard that people in our generation don't accept it the way the people that came before us, yet we are faced with the same reality that we all live and die? Yeah, no, that's right. So I look, so there are a lot of factors, um, but I look back specifically to about 100 years ago. What happened 100 years ago? Well, we have uh, World War I, 1914 to 1918 was the U.S. involvement. And the and World War I led to massive loss of life and not just soldiers, but also civilians. Um, women and children died in large numbers. And this affected everyone in the world. Well, everyone in the world who, who was participating, but the, the, the impact was, was worldwide. And the millions and millions who died uh, were spread around the globe. So we emerge from this six-year period, and it was different in Europe than in the United States. But in the United States, we have a lot of investment in sort of rebuilding, and we, we sort of roll into the roaring 20s, a time of immense economic prosperity. It wasn't just economic prosperity, though. It was a rapid and radical shedding of prior ways of living. Mm-hmm. Okay, so women who had lost spouses or loved ones in World War One no longer wanted to dress in mourning. Uh, they would dress in mourning for a year. They would hang ribbons on their door to to connote that this was a house of mourning. People didn't want to do that. They were sick of death. Right. They, they just wanted to get on with life. Yeah. They wanted to live. And so then you see all of these things. Right. Motion pictures. Um, new forms of music, new forms of dance, new forms of dress. You start seeing women wearing short dresses, the flapper dresses. Uh, We have uh, radio becomes more popular. More and more people are getting vehicles. Women get the right to vote. It just goes on and on and on. And then what do we also have? We have the birth of antibiotics. And we have, by the 1940s, early forms of chemotherapy. And by the 50s and 60s, we're talking about organ transplantation and cardiac resuscitation. And by the 70s, we have really complex chemotherapy. And so if you are a post-World War II uh, individual, a baby boomer, up until this current pandemic, anyone, baby boomers and younger, have never seen loss of life. We've only known medical capability to delay death. And this is also coupled with the rise of the hospital. Yeah. So in the late 1800s, there are a few hundred hospitals in the U.S. By the 1920s, there are more than 6,000, which is slightly more than we have today. So, so nobody has to care for the dying at home. Medicine promises new life, right? 
and uh, and people are frankly sick of thinking about death. So, so all those things kind of conspire. There are more factors, but I think those are the most interesting ones, especially in light of our current moment with COVID and pandemic. You know, I wrote this book kind of riffing off of plague <clears throat> and the need to think proactively about the preparation for death. I, it, the whole book was completed more than a year before the pandemic broke. So I had no idea that I would be releasing a book on how plague gets us to think about our mortality uh, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Frankly, I, I never really thought that a pandemic of this scale would be possible. That's prophetic there. Well, so, right. I released this book and Saul, I thought, wow, here I am in this moment, you know, Uh Uh, this book should sell. And and I mean, the book's done okay, but it hasn't, um, people are still really reluctant to talk about death. Uh, If you just watch how the media has covered the pandemic, what has it been? It's been about treatments. It's been about quarantine. It's been about policy. Everything has been about thwarting death. How often have you read a newspaper article? There have been a couple, but they're pretty rare. Or seen a coverage on the on the news where somebody comes on and says, you know what? We're going to die even if it's not COVID. So why don't we take this moment of global pandemic to re- reflect on our mortality and to talk about how we might prepare for death. That has not been the conversation, right? Well, I think the conversation needs to change about the idea of even just talking about the word death, because uh, all I hear in my work is, oh, they passed. Oh, you know, something of that nature. Uh, We're afraid to talk about death. We're afraid to acknowledge that it is a reality in my mind. Uh, especially when I start hearing uh, these these cases, like you're saying, about just the pandemic and even in the past. When did we stop talking about death as being a part of life over the, this past hundred years that you say everything has changed? When did we stop saying, you know, it started when we stopped doing death at home and doing funerals at home and doing things like that. People just, you know, are afraid. Yeah, it's interesting, too, if you look at, uh, and I, I, again, I'm no expert here, but I've I've talked to some people who have studied the content of sermons mm-hmm. over the course of the last hundred years or more. Yep. And prior to World War One and the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920, uh, the content of sermons or homilies was very much, you know, very much focused on mortality. Mm-hmm. And we need to live well in order to die well. This yep. is a part of like being a, you know, I mean, you could say a good Christian, right? This would have been the content from a a, a priest or a, a clergy person's perspective. This content was very much woven into regular teaching. Yep. Now, if, you know, if you're liturgical, you might get, you get some death talk at, at um, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, right? But there's not a lot of death talk in in our religious spaces. Um, Agreed. And that really shifted uh, in the 20s. You just stopped seeing priests and and pastors talking about this stuff. That is, <laughs> it's true. It's so, so true. Uh, in a sense, um, I think all entire leadership, by theologians, religious leaders, have to begin. Um, 
to talk more about this topic uh, because the sanit you know, like Joe was talking about how we how we've sanitized death. I was in a nursing home the other day, and somebody died, but they were trying to find a, a back door to remove the dead body instead of moving it right from the front door. Because <laughs> yeah, they really, oh, that's sad. <laughs> they're like, we don't want the residents to be scared. Oh wow! Yeah, feels like if you can't acknowledge death in a nursing home, then. And yeah. Well, the other part of this too is uh, in our hospice recently, I've noticed that we go in as extra care nurses, not hospice, extra care nurses, which I think is just, again, an an identifier saying, you know, you're dying, but don't tell anybody, even though the patient probably knows darn well that they are, they are dying. Yeah. Especially when uh, most of our patients only spend a few days in hospice before they die because exactly. they're often transferred to hospice way too late mm-hmm. um, when hospice can offer so much more to, to families and communities and to the dying person himself or herself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I hear it all the time uh, when families come up and say, I wish we would have known about hospice earlier. And I'm like, it's there. Where's, you know, where is it? Where are you being taught? Who's teaching you about what you have available as your loved one is is taking the you know, end of life journey? That's right. That's right. I think, though, uh, Lydia, uh, it's a question of context. I come from Africa, where life is lived in community. So the rituals of dying and the rituals of birth are all within the community. We don't have sophisticated healthcare system like we have here in America. If somebody's sick, they're sick at home. They're born at home, they die at home. So I think even when you look back many years ago, 100 years ago, I think people lived more within the context of the community. That's why the teachings like the As Moriende could work well. But now we are in an individualized culture mm-hmm. <laughs> where self-centeredness and the self-made man is being glorified. Then in that context, talking about dying becomes really hard. What do yeah. you yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean what I tend to tell people is if if I were to strip the Ars Moriendi of down to down to its barest bones, and what do we need in this current moment in a highly pluralistic society? Right. Hmm. I mean, the Ars Moriendi developed in a time when really the Christian church was the dominant church in the yes. West in Western Europe. Right. It's not that way now. Mm-hmm. So what what could we reduce it to? And which isn't to say that I'm advocating for reduction. But but if we were to say what's the, what's the bare bones, the bare, bare bones is twofold. One is the acknowledgement of our finitude. Right. We will all die. And if we don't start with that, we can't even anticipate and prepare for death, right? So we need at least to acknowledge our mortality. And I will tell you that I have had patients who've said to me, why are you even bringing this up? Because as a primary care doctor, I have to ask about advanced directives. Mm -hmm. Would they want resuscitation? That sort of thing. Patients will look at me and say, why do you even bring this up? I'm 75 years old. I feel great. I don't want to talk about death. And you know, you know, <laughs> that's problematic, right? Um, so first thing, so that's the first thing. The second thing 
if we're to reduce the Ars Moriendi to its barest bones, it is the role of community, as you said, Saul. And in the West, particularly in on the coasts, in big cities, what is community? And I say to people, you know, I'm routinely asked, well, you know, look, I'm kind of a loner or I don't, you know, I don't live near my family or I'm estranged from my family or I, you know, whatever. I'm not that social. You need one good person, one good friend, one person. And, and sometimes I ask people to think about it this way. Imagine you are dying. Who is at your deathbed? Who would you want to be there? Hmm. And then work backwards from that. You really ask that question? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I just think that's awesome. Awesome. Who would you want at your deathbed? And then what is the state of those relationships now? Hmm. Okay. I've asked that question. Excuse me. uh, I've asked that question to neighbors. Uh, Of course, talk to families about it when their loved one is, you know, is imminently dying. Uh, They might not want anybody here. They might want somebody here. Do you know who that might be? Do you know what it is that they need to have? And that is a wonderful question that you lead into a discussion that every family should have. Yeah. So, so, and then, but, but the, the part of it is um, what is the state of that relationship now and does it need work? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. once I had Mm -hmm. somebody ask me, he said to me, look, okay, fine. I know who I want to be there when I die, but frankly, I can't stand the guy. (laughs) <laughs> and so can't I just wait until I either get the diagnosis or, you know, you name it, and then try to work on our relationship. And of course, right. I mean, he was kind of being funny, but mm-hmm. that's just ridiculous. Nobody knows when they're going to die. Yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. knows. Yeah. And so why not do the work now? Because not only will the relationship be that much deeper, that much more beautiful when you're dying, you also have a lifetime, whatever remaining time you have left to enjoy that relationship. It's only going to be richer. It's only going to be better. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Lydia. Uh, before the break, you were talking about uh, the concept of community and helping patients begin you know, to recapture that sense of community before they die. How is that working out in your experience? Yeah, so it's something that I I challenge my patients and I suppose listeners uh, with, um, but it's also not always something that I have the privilege to sort of see whether the work is being done, right? Yeah. Um, certainly with my, my uh, primary care patients, I can check in with them when I see them every month or every few months and, you know, how's it going? How's that relationship going? I can do some of that. Um, but with patients in the hospital, you know, they're, they're under my care as long as they're here, then they go home. And, um, in most cases, I don't see them again. So I'm sad to say that I don't, I can't give you the follow-up on that, but 
uh, I've had so many conversations with people who uh, are challenged by the thought of 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 considering who will be with them when they're dying and and how they need to work at those relationships now. Mm. So the as Moriandi um, has the five temptations. Is it? It's the five temptations, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how is that now in relation to current context? Hmm. How how would you apply those? Yeah, that's really interesting. So so one of the I'll I'll just give a little bit of background to the listeners. So one of the central aspects of the earliest versions of the Ars Moriendi that people in Western Europe in particular really gravitated toward was this idea that there were five kind of main ways that people die poorly. And there were five virtues um, or character traits that people could try to cultivate over a lifetime to thwart the possibility of dying poorly. So, so for example, one of the ways that people died poorly was um, through impatience, right? Just being so sick of, of suffering, wanting to die and get it over with, being angry and sort of... Uh, uh, I don't know, even perhaps um, suicidal, right? Just wanting to have it end. Um, this was seen as not a, not a good way to die. Uh, and so the idea was over your lifetime, if you cultivate patience, right? As the sort of antidote to impatience, that when you're approaching your final suffering, uh, you will be able to endure that with with more more grace and wisdom than had you not cultivated that. Uh, so these were sort of places of personal challenge for people as they read uh, and absorbed the Ars Moriendi. There were other temptations. So temptation to despair was countered by cultivating uh, a character of hope, hopefulness. The, the temptation to doubt and to sort of give up on one's spiritual beliefs was um, was countered by cultivating a life of faith and faithfulness, these sorts of things. So how do they apply today? Uh, um, it's interesting, I'll say, and I talk about this in the book, that the one thing that is notably absent from these temptations. There's a temptation to greed countered by generosity, temptation to pride countered by humility. Those are the five. Um, what's absent is a temptation to fear. Hmm. And I think if there's anything that characterizes our current way that we die poorly, it is fear as the motivator. I think it is fear often that forces people to cling to technology when it has nothing to offer. It's fear that drives people to the hospital, even when they know their loved one is dying and was already sent home on hospice. And now they're still going back to that. So there's a lot of fear. Um, and my, my, my suspicion is that part of the reason that fear was not addressed as its own entity hmm. in the sort of 500 years of versions of handbooks on dying well is because there was already this ground level acknowledgement of death as inevitable. Hmm. So it's coming anyway. You might as well not waste that much energy on fear. I mean, it's okay to be apprehensive. We all are at new situations, but death is coming for all of us. So, so let's not waste energy on being afraid. 
it's been my understanding that people are more fearful of it is the dying process than they are of death itself. And uh, is that part of that thinking as well? Because they don't yeah, want I, people. I people don't want pain, you know. People just don't want a, that kind of suffering that you're talking about as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting it, when you look at the data on why people ask for lethal drugs in um, Washington State and Oregon, where mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. death with dignity or physician-assisted suicide is legal. Uh, the vast majority of people, around 90%, say that the reason why they want those lethal drugs is because they don't want to become a burden. And they uh, fear the loss of being able to do things that give their lives meaning. Mm -hmm. But only about 25% of people say that it's actually physical physical pain that they're afraid of. Really? Um, That's interesting. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yes. We tend to think, oh, we need to legalize this because there's this level of pain we cannot treat. Well, in fact, you know, most palliative care doctors will tell you that almost all pain is treatable, even if we have to give people so many pain meds that they become unconscious, but we can still manage almost all pain. Um, at any rate, I would say, uh, Joan, in my conversations with people, it's pretty evenly split. I think there are a good number of people who hang around healthcare who definitely fear the possibility of ending up in our institutions, right? I don't want to be in the hospital when I'm dying, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. But then there are a lot of people who do have that existential dread, that angst about becoming nothing. Yes. Right? The fear of the nothingness, the fear of the unknown. Uh, I think that is probably equal. So I don't know, are they split 50-50? I'm not sure. Uh, but I think there's a lot of, of both kinds of fear. But, you know, so if you contrast this to an enchanted world where, you know, angels and demons and, and God and the devil are kind of part of the everyday conversation, heaven and hell, and you kind of are orienting towards wanting to have life with God or, you know, the afterlife with God, it's a very different context then for thinking about nothingness because there is no nothingness. Mm. There's the afterlife in that framework. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so there's something there's, there's a view as the, the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says that death is just a threshold. So you don't need to fear that, that, nothingness because if there is no nothingness death is a threshold to life mm-hmm. you know sort of an uppercase life if this is lowercase life that we're living in the kind of enchanted worldview that religion offers says this is this is lowercase life death is just a threshold to uppercase life and that's real living so from your perspective what what would be the cultural practices that you think we can cultivate uh, to prepare people for death? Good question. Yeah, so this is kind of what I I spend a lot of the book talking about. Uh, I think there are a lot of different ways to get at this. Again, starting from the standpoint that we don't all share a common belief system. Yes. Where that is prescribed. But the way I get at it in the book is to ask people to ask their own questions, right? So what are the cultural practices or the rituals surrounding dying and death and sickness 
that you have seen, that you have participated in, that give meaning to you? What, which of those would you want to carry forward and why? And then you can ask the same questions that we asked about community and who's at the deathbed. We can ask those same questions as well. Who are the people? What are the practices? What are the rituals? And then you, you push it further, right? What are the beliefs? Um, and I, I talk in the book about a woman that I was caring for. She's a patient of mine in the hospital. I was called to the bedside. The nurses called me because she was being difficult, right? But this is this nice medical euphemism for, you know, the patient is upset about something and, and she was difficult. So I went to the bedside. She was actively dying, but she had had this moment of clarity enough to know that she had unresolved religious questions. Mm. And let me tell you, when she's actively dying, it's kind of hard. I mean, actively dying isn't she had days, but it was hard for me as her doctor. You know, of course we called the chaplain, but she she was estranged from family. There's all these all these issues as there often is. Um, but I tell her story to say, look, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes, as they say. Uh-huh. If if you're dying, you start asking these religious questions why don't people ask them a little bit sooner? You know, just like we're investing in community a little bit sooner, just like we're thinking about what practices and rituals help us navigate the chaos, just like we're talking with our doctors about do not resuscitate orders or whether we would want limitations on chemotherapy or or surgeries for very frail family members. Just like we're having all those other conversations, we also need to think about the religious questions. And look, if you if you go to the grave completely at peace with you know your questions solved, um, I that's what I'm asking for. I'm not going to tell you what you need to believe. I don't feel like that is my role as the doctor, um, but I'm going to tell you you need you need to consider those beliefs. That's not our role either to tell them how to believe. It's our role to go and and walk with them in this journey when we're there as, a, as the chaplain. Uh, it's obvious to me in my experiences that I've seen with people who have really know themselves and know their faith and know their, their spiritual power uh, just by the calm that they exude when you walk into the room and say, hey, you know, how you doing? You know, I'm okay. I'm okay. And that's a, it, it's a very powerful time just, you know, to know that they've got it. Yeah, Lydia, you've, you really challenge us well. And it looks like at mom, uh, some point the church or religious leaders actually dropped the ball. And um, because we have a lot of influence, uh, many people go to the religious services. If the religious leaders could talk more about this, I think it will help. And your book, The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom, I think it should be you know embraced, especially by the church and Mm-hmm. And make it, you know, have people have access to this kind of knowledge and resources, and to begin to think, as we live well, it's better to die well too. What are your final thoughts? Uh, I agree. Thank you. No, I think this has been a wonderful conversation, and the takeaway really is for all of us to live examined lives, right? Exactly. Um, how do we? How do we live in such a way? so that we die well. And let's start the work today. Yep. How can our listeners get a hold of you or your book? 
Oh, it's on Amazon. <laughs> Go to Amazon. Oh, yeah. Be happy for your business. <laughs> it's on, on Amazon. Okay. If you haven't checked it, please check out Lydia's book, The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Blessings. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.